Hi friends, welcome to Coffee with Caregivers. I'm your host, Jess Ronnie, also known as Jess Plus The Mess. I'm an author, speaker, and founder of The Lucas Project, a nonprofit dedicated to bringing recognition, resources, and respite to special needs families. I created Coffee with Caregivers as a space to bring awareness to the struggles that families often face, including difficulties related to finances, mental health, and everything else in between. It is my belief that stories can change the world, and through conversations with caregivers, I hope to provide awareness which will lead to compassion and resources. Thanks for joining me today, but first a word from our sponsors. Welcome to Coffee with Caregivers. I'm Jess Ronnie, and I am here today with my friend Shannon Guerra. Am I saying that correctly? You are. Yep. Good. <laughs> so yeah. I was thinking about how we first got connected, and I believe I heard you on a podcast, and you were speaking very honestly about your experiences with adoption. And you were talking about attachment issues that often present in children who are adopted and light bulbs just went off everywhere for me um, because I also have three adopted children and everything you were saying just resonated with me so strongly. And I thought, oh my goodness, this isn't all in my head. This is actually a real thing. (laughs) So thank you for speaking so honestly about that. You changed my life. Um, I then went and dug all over Amazon to find all the books I could find just to educate myself on this. So I just thank you for that and for vulnerably opening yourself up and your story up. Um, I think you're really helping a lot of people with that. Wow. Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Give us give us a little overview of who you are, where you live, which is really cool, and who you live with and <laughs> what your life looks like and all that good stuff. Yeah. Well, I am a writer. I am an author and a mom. Uh, we have eight kids. I'm a wife. We live in Alaska. I was born here. And um, that's kind of what we do. We um, do a lot of laundry. My friend, um, it's fishing season here. And a friend of mine asked me recently, do you fish? And I said, no, we read books and we do laundry. So (laughs) who has time to fish with as many kids? I don't know. Do you have like the washboard or? (laughs) Why would you add more laundry to that? I mean, have you seen what happens to clothes when you go fishing? It's not pretty. That's very We don't need it. Right. So Yeah. That's our life right now, and um, we're in our 40s. Our oldest kid is 19 and out of the house, and our youngest kid is 19 months and uh, very much in our bed. <laughs> right. So this is just really full right now and um, exhausting and, yeah, yeah. just caregiving, caregiving on, on lots of levels. And you homeschool as well, correct? We yeah, we do. Okay. Yeah. I'm watching this pioneer documentary on Amazon. It was actually kind of poorly done, but it's fascinating. They put like modern day people into the pioneering lifestyle. And oh, I've heard put, of that. Yeah. And it's, it's addicting and um, they have to commit to this for a year. And every time I watch it, I think of your family in Alaska. Oh, really? <laughs> 
you guys seem so pioneering, I guess. Do we really? Oh my gosh. But see, we don't fish. I I don't hunt. <laughs> but you're always crocheting sure. or or doing something yeah. homey yeah. and baking bread. Right. I'll barter off of crochet if somebody else can do all the hunting and forage. Okay. That's good. Well, this is, this is coffee with caregivers. So tell us a little bit more about how you are a caregiver and who you care for. Okay. Well, I know that a lot of caregiving people deal with a lot of physical special needs and we don't really have that. We have a lot of, um, more emotional behavioral special needs and it has gotten so much easier over the last few years. Um, but it's mostly our, our two adopted kiddos who have the special needs and, um, and we have had them home now for nine years. They're both 14. Um, no, wait. Yeah. They're both 14. So we've had them here for eight years. Okay. So, um, so we have seen a huge um, change basically from, you know, day one uh, at six months when they were home versus now eight some odd years later. Um, but the main thing that we have had to deal with is um, with the attachment issues that you mentioned, um, it, that involves a ton of hypervigilance, just watching constantly. Um turning our home environment from the sanctuary that it used to be into more of a something that feels more like a residential treatment home almost where you have surveillance and where you can't leave someone unsupervised or um, you can't honestly trust a word they say. You know, those kinds of situations where it creates a different atmosphere in the home and um it doesn't always feel like a healthy atmosphere. I mean, it's not a healthy atmosphere when you right. can't trust someone in your home and um, and you have to take steps to create surveillance or um, or just this crazy high level of supervision that isn't normal um, because this isn't normal. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's not as, as physically involved as, as like I know what you guys deal with. Um, but there's a lot of emotional involvement. There's, um, I know that one of the things I'm even dealing with lately that I've been recognizing more and more in my own life is that this many years in, I'm realizing how traumatic those first couple years were and how much I still live with that and how I still respond or, um, even before I, I, um, even before I actually respond, my heart response comes from a place of trauma and fear from those early days. And so for us, trying to relay those tracks down um, has been a big deal. And for my kids, um, understanding that their level of trauma is so much deeper even, um, it gives me a real visual for how, um, how hard it is for them to relay their tracks down from their trauma that came from the very beginning. They have never known anything else, you know, and that's what we've been trying to help them through all this time. But it's hard and and it's hard when um, it creates trauma in your own life and then you've got to deal with this and it's just this multi-layered mess. (laughs) It's really hard, you know, to just keep navigating all these things, to walk in love, to walk in compassion, to 
remember where they come from, to remember where you come from, to show grace to yourself, to show grace to your spouse and the kids. And yeah. And you adopted them at what ages? They were six, almost seven. Both okay. Um, yeah. Okay. And any other diagnosis outside of the attachment issues? Yeah. Or- yeah. Our daughter has pretty severe fetal alcohol. And that plays in really hard with the attachment issues because she honestly does have really um, severe memory loss, um, you know, difficult. Um, she has a lot of brain function issues. And so with her, it's really hard to tell when she is genuinely not remembering something, genuinely not able to do something because she doesn't remember that she knows how to do it versus mm-hmm. pretending to not be able to do it and um, uh, as an attachment issue. Mm-hmm. So um, that has been for her, for us with her, one of the hardest things to navigate is, um, you know, we don't want to not give her the benefit of the doubt. But at the same time, when we give her the benefit of the doubt and she's abusing it, that's also bad. <laughs> you know, right. you're rewarding a behavior that that just perpetuates and um, some really hard things for her and for us. So that has been really hard to navigate, just being able to distinguish between is this attachment right now or is this fetal alcohol? Or is it, you know, shutting down from the trauma that I'm assuming she right. went through? And she you know, yeah. having gone that's- through a lot of trauma myself, I know that some of those memories like get pushed so far down that you don't even know anymore what's real right. or not real or so yeah I can imagine that would be really tricky to try to figure out which category that that falls into or that behavior falls into can you explain mm-hmm. is it attachment disorder is that the technical term for it uh I think that's the technical term and we have never um officially had our kids diagnosed with a level of attachment. I mean, cause it's a spectrum almost, you know, you have reactive attachment disorder, which is all the way at the one end, mm-hmm. um, which is the most severe. And then you have attachment issues. So okay. um, I have always said that our kids have attachment issues. I don't want to label them with anything extreme. Um, part of the trauma that we dealt with in those first couple of years was um, having an absolute debacle in the healthcare system with lack of support, lack of communication, misinformation, people who did not understand adoption, um, people who said, you need to have this done. And, oh, wait, you can't have that done because your child isn't severe enough for a neuropsych. And I'm like, she's wetting her underwear at age eight and she's almost nonverbal. You, you're telling me she's not serious enough for this. I mean, it was, absolutely phenomenal how um, we were just plunged into this realm of having no support when we expected to have support. And, and, you know, when you do the adoption process, of course, you have to do all the paperwork and answer all the questions. Who is your support team? You know, oh, we have this support team. This person has been my doctor and she's super supportive. But you find out later that the people who are supportive during your adoption process aren't necessarily that supportive after the drama is all over and the children are in your home and that requires some change on the behalf of other people. You know, we had a doctor who couldn't support those attachment issues and created a lot more problems than she helped with. Mm -hmm. And um, just trying to navigate that whole system was so hard. It honestly jaded me toward 
continuing to try to reach out to another professional who I was afraid was going to make things worse before they made it better. So that's part of our story is we did not get a true diagnosis for, um, for our son, at least as far as the attachment issues went, because it took us years until we even felt like, um, we had reliable people who we could trust with a recommendation. And at that point we didn't have insurance anymore. Okay. So, and at that point without insurance, do you really want to drop hundreds of dollars a month on something that might be therapeutic and right, or it might not be. Or buy so, a book on Amazon. Right. Attack. So we did a lot of book right. <laughs> <laughs> Or find a podcast like I did and go, yes. oh, ding, ding, ding. That mm-hmm. is exactly what we're dealing with. Right. And so. I think that's what a lot of adoptive moms and dads and, I mean, families who deal with special needs, we find our community among each other because the professionals, unless they actually are genuinely part of that community already themselves because they have adopted or they have special needs kids, um, if they don't have personal, real experience, sometimes they speak out of their desk work and their book learning, and it's not helpful. And um, yes. unfortunately, a lot of them have an arrogance about them that is condemning, and it does so much more harm than good. It leaves the parents feeling more helpless, more shamed, more like failures, and and we don't need any more of that. We're already dealing with all the lies in our own heads. We need people who can actually support us, who really know what they're talking about, instead of just talking out of their hubris. And right, um, so that's a real thing. Can you give an overview? I'm imagining a lot of listeners going, "What is attachment disorder, or what are attachment issues? What what does that mean?" Because even I wasn't really fully aware of how exactly that played out, and. I think if you could sort of give an overview of why that's such a difficult thing for a parent, because often these children can be masterminds when it comes to the other adults in their lives. And the attachment issue occurs with the parent and the lack of attachment there. So it's trying to convince these other people in their life that there is an issue that nobody else maybe sees or there's a level of manipulation or pity that makes it hard to explain it to other people. So maybe you can talk into that a little bit. For sure. Yeah. It's super counterintuitive and it's behind the scenes. So it is not something that people who are not living with a child will generally see unless they are extremely perceptive and they have already experienced it in their own life. So attachment issues, um, very lay person's kind of overview would be, um, for example, a child who has never attached with their birth parents, um, or it could have, um, you can have this with adopted children. You see it in foster children. Sometimes you see it in biological children even, but the child is not attached to their parents. And so, um, for our situation, our two kids grew up in two separate orphanages where uh, they were abused, they were neglected, there was lots of trauma, there was no primary caregiver who they attached to, who loved them, who they could trust. So they came to view adults as this revolving door of caregivers. Um, No one was really safe. And once they came into our home, 
and we are not revolving. We are always there. We are the ones dealing with all of the, the love and the care and the discipline and the correction and the teaching and all this stuff. That is extremely scary for them because they have never experienced that before. And they resist it because it does not feel safe to them because what they know is superficial relationship. And so once you get into a deep relationship, like a true parent um, with an adoptive parent or even a a really invested foster parent or even a biological parent who is um, reinvesting back into this child's life, the child will resist with everything they've got. And they, the ways that they will resist are repulsive and scary and manipulative. They will triangulate. They will mommy or daddy shop with strangers. They will look around roaming, um, for example, like in the middle of church during a church service. They will be um, not paying attention to the service. They will be roaming around looking for um eye contact with another mommy or daddy that they can kind of just latch onto. Mm -hmm. Um, They are very charming um, and they will find the person who is soft and squishy, the super nice grandma. (laughs) Church would be the most miserable place for an adoptive family. We know so many adoptive families who have given up on church because the church has not supported them in understanding their attachment needs because Mm -hmm. the people at church are so freaking nice. They, um, they have no idea how they are destroying the attachment in an adoptive yes. family by being so squishy nice to these children and absolutely undermining the authority and support that the parents need to develop that attachment. Because while um, the child is seeking out this superficial attachment with any other adult they can find, it is destroying the attachment and the work that the parent has actually been working toward. And um it's, it's so disrespectful. It's so, um, and I know so often it's not intentional. People just do not know better, but there are also other people who are like, we had a doctor who we tried to explain this to and, and some people will just, um, they don't want to be taught or they'll say, that's not my personality. I just can't be, um, I, I can't set those boundaries with this child because I just really need to be a supportive person to them. And they don't understand that in not supporting the parent, they are not supporting the child. They are wreaking havoc in that child's life because after they've had this soft, squishy interaction and they leave, they do not see the following weeks of absolute violent upheaval that has happened in the family's home as a result of that swinging back and forth that's happened in the child's heart because the child does not understand um, at that point the difference between this superficial relationship that has, you know, Nothing has happened there, really. They've sort of made this false bond in their mind. Um, and then it doesn't work out because that person, of course, is not actually attached to them. And then they come back to their home and their family and and they act out against those parents again. They act out against their siblings. It, um, it harms not only the relationship, it harms other children in the home. It harms the peace in, in the home. Mm-hmm. And it chips away at that attachment that should be occurring with parental caregivers. So every time somebody reaches out and has pity on this child and they, they feed into it for them, not for the child, it makes them feel good to feel like they're helping in some way. Right. in, In essence, they are chipping away at all that work that's already been done between the parent and the child. And it is 
devastating. Um, yeah. Parents are the ones who are doing the work and we need to allow the parents to do the work and not mess with it. Mm-hmm. And allow that attachment to occur because that's what the child needs above all else. Yeah. Yeah. And we've experienced the gamut in our family. We have extremely supportive family members who were respectful from the get-go about being hands-off. Um, and then we have other family members who we had to cut off contact with. Okay. And those were hard choices to make. Um, yeah. But but you have, as a parent, when you're dealing with a child who needs such an extreme amount of healing, we're not there to make everybody happy anymore. You know, right. we got to do what's best for the kid and that's hard for us and it's hard um on it's hard on our biological kids and this is the mission that the whole family kind of signs up for Mm -hmm. so you know and and just for anybody who is still trying to grasp this whole situation of what are attachment issues it you know i just want to validate it is important for a child to have lots of healthy relationships with adults but with a child who Uh, has never been attached to an adult before, they have got to get that primary relationship down first with their mom and their dad before anybody else comes into play. There is no other priority of relationship in their life. There's no um, grandma and grandpa are not more important than mom and dad. And grandma and grandpa or aunt and uncle have got to understand that they absolutely cannot usurp the parent's authority They cannot undermine what the parents are trying to do. They have got to take a back seat to what mom and dad are trying to do in bonding with that child because it is hard enough as it is to break through those, um, the walls that the child has brought into their life, you know, the walls that um, the child has built in their life as a defense mechanism against all the harm um, without other well-meaning people uh, contributing to that difficult situation. So here's a question for you. If, if that attachment is healed, is it ever truly healed? I guess would be my first question. Is it possible to truly bridge that and heal that completely? Or will there, there always be some mistrust in that relationship? I don't know. I mean, I, I hope and believe that it can truly be healed. I know I've heard some amazing success stories from people who um, like I'm thinking of a woman right now who's an adoptive mom whose daughter is, I think, in her 20s now, and they have a great relationship. And they dealt with all the stuff that we have dealt with, but they did it 20 years ago when there was no language for this. They didn't call it attachment issues back then. They didn't have um, that term back then. Um, and they've seen great success. I know that like in my own life, as I have walked through this with our kids, I can see how in my childhood from trauma, I had attachment issues and walking, uh, walking as a parent with my kids and seeing it on that end has really helped me heal a lot of things and recognize a lot of unhealthy patterns that I had in my childhood that I even brought into adulthood that I needed healing in. And so, yeah. I think there is healing, but oh man, we've got to be teachable, you know, mm-hmm. and the kid has got to be teachable. Eventually right. they've learned that it's safe. And, um, and you know, that's, that's partly on them. You know, we all have to own our own story at some point. We can't always play the victim and mm-hmm. trauma is real and hard, hard situations really happen. And some life experiences are worse than others, but 
as an individual, we've all got to decide what we're going to do with that. So as a mom, I can do everything I can for my kids. Um, but at the end of the day, when my son is 18 or 19, if he's still refusing to read or do schoolwork, that's not my responsibility anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, if we have given him every opportunity to learn and grow and thrive, and he is continuing to buck against that, that's on him. Mm-hmm. And that is something for me that I've had to face and um, just continually pray about. And, you know, as we look toward the future, he's 14 and, um, you know, we have to face all the what ifs and we want to do it prayerfully and um, with hope. And at the same time, I mean, man, parenthood is rough. (laughs) Childhood is rough. Parenthood is rough too. It just doesn't really get easier sometimes. Right. um, You know, but like, I mean, for us personally, we had a really hard time with our oldest kid um, who also had some, some special needs and stuff. And as a young adult now, just over this last year, we've seen some amazing strides and victory that he has made on his own. Um, and it all happened after we were hands off and we just totally had to give him to the Lord and be like, okay, balls in your court, God, cause I can't do this anymore. Yep, I'm done. <laughs> and the Lord will do so many good things with that. And, um, so we are just trusting him with all of our kids and, right. and, uh, and we have to, regardless of their background, we could have, um, I mean, we've got eight kids, so you have a lot of kids too. And even our kids with a healthy, you know, fairly normal upbringing, there's no guarantee that they're going to thrive off of that. Mm-hmm. We all have, um, different personalities and bents. And so, um, we just pray and do what we can try not to beat ourselves up too much over it. Yeah, that's where I land as a mom too. Um, I will do my best by you until you're 18 and then Godspeed. <laughs> I'll continue <laughs> to pray you through, but <laughs> we have eight as well. So right. and we're, we're in a really hard season of parenting right now. Uh, five teenagers, one with profound special needs. Just It just feels like a lot and having to be so present for all of them and all of their needs and not check out. Um, it just feels like a lot, but we see the light at the end of the tunnel. We have two, our two oldest are graduating this next year and then they're off to college. And I honestly, yeah. think every year that we sort of release one, we'll be like, Oh, <laughs> and then, yeah. you know, grandchildren will come. So, yeah. Um, I just want to back up just for a second. You've spoken in really vague terms about what these needs look like in your daily life. Could you break that down a little bit into more specifics about how attachment issues present in a daily scenario? Yeah. Um, for us, we um, uh, in our home, we've had to over-communicate about certain things because, for example, we'll have a child who needs to do his schoolwork. Let's just pretend this scenario is happening. Right. You know, totally imaginary. <laughs> imaginary. Right? Okay. So let's just pretend a child for his schoolwork has to write um, a sentence and he's really good at writing and he knows English grammar and he knows spelling, but he is refusing to write the word lesson. Uh, correctly. And this is the hill he wants to die on today. So he will write (laughs) lesson 
as in L-E-S-O-N, L-E-S-I-N, L-A-R-S-O-N, which is Larson, hello. And I mean, just how many different creative ways can I misspell this because I don't want to do school today. And this is his way of saying, I don't want to do school today. And that's <laughs> lately, that's the battle. It's, it's how can we teach you um, as a child, not only academically, you know, so that you can function as a, as a happy adult in life, but how can we teach you that if you just are going to not do school today, that you can just tell us, I don't want to do school today instead of lying and manipulating and telling me, hey, can you check my schoolwork? Because I want to show you that I did it wrong for the 18th time. You know, right. that so is how do you right how do you now. address a behavior like that? So eventually and, and it's not like and he doesn't get 18 chances. He gets usually one, maybe two chances because we know that the more chances we give him, he's just going to it just kind of feeds that um, that drive to manipulate uh if he doesn't do school today, he ends up doing chores. So he has learned, he's in a season of, if he doesn't want to do math, then he's learning different skill sets. Like he got to learn how to gut fish a couple months ago. He got to learn how to do some landscaping because these are chores that need to be done. And if he's not going to do school, then let's do these. And at least, you know, maybe then you'll have some experience that, um, you know, creates some skills that you can be hired for later on. Right. But we can't just reward him for lying and manipulating all day and sitting at the table, staring at everybody else throughout the house who's moving about their day, um, interrupting us when we're trying to work with other children or do our own work and um, not do anything productive. Mm -hmm. So that's how that's looking right now. Okay. And you obviously don't walk around, you don't go to church and like point your fingers at these two kids and say, these two have attachment issues, so don't do X, Y, and Z. How, how do you ap approach that or, or deal with that, I guess, if you start to see something occurring between an adult and your child? Do you say something to your yeah. child, to the adult? How, how do you handle a situation yeah. like that? Okay. Well, it's always a different kind of situation. So there have been times where, for example, we were actually meeting someone new and I had to pull them aside and say, these two have attachment issues. I need you to not engage with them. I need you to not touch them. Absolutely do not hand them food and things like that. Um, other times we had a situation a few weeks ago where we were at a staff gathering and um, the one person at that gathering who probably absolutely needed to know um, and who did not understand the attachment issues went right up to our child with the most attachment issues and started um, talking to him all about his schoolwork that he was doing and really rewarding him for basically he was not allowed to play that day because he had refused to do school. So he was doing his schoolwork there and um, basically um, just got this huge reward for it because this really nice grandmotherly type lady came up to him and just filled his cup. And fortunately in that moment, my daughter saw it. She got my attention. I went right up. I pulled her aside, pulled her away from him and immediately had to start talking to her about, this is what attachment issues are. Please don't talk to this child. And, and even then she was super teachable, but even just trying to teach people that um, 
I am talking to you about this and I need you to lower your voice because I don't want this child to know that we're talking all about his special needs. Um, things like that. People are like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. And that's not super helpful either, <laughs> you know. Um, right, because it doesn't present as a special need necessarily. It just it presents doesn't. as a typical child. Right. Oh, and his writing is so good. I'm like, but he's 14. And oh my gosh, I had no idea he's 14. Well, please, could you lower your voice so he doesn't hear you saying that, you right. know? Um, you know, and oh, what about your real children? They're all my real children. And so just kind of trying to teach people this language of, he's not my fake kid. <laughs> right. Know, these aren't my real kids. And um, just as a culture in society, as a church culture, we have got to start understanding these things better mm -hmm. because the ignorance and the, the well-meaning ignorance is doing so much more harm than good. And we are losing families to it. You know, mm -hmm. we have marriages imploding and we have families leaving the church. We have biological children who are just plummeting in their own behavior or um, mental health because of the stress in the home and the stress in the parents and the lack of support in the community. And the community, especially the church, has no excuse not to rise up and start dealing with this appropriately. We've got to be uh, more supportive. We've got to learn what adoption and foster care support really looks like. We've got to stop paying attention to uh, made-for-TV Hallmark movies and um, all the happy rosy blogs all about happy um, oh, happy adoption where all the living rooms look perfect. I mean, I love those people, but I think they're lying. <laughs> yeah. And then the kid gets rehomed seven years into it because it's and, and, way more intense than they ever led anybody to believe. Right. Because they were, this was a whole facade in the first place mm -hmm. because, and, and on in their defense, they probably didn't have a community that made them feel like it was safe enough to be honest in the first place because the community doesn't understand what's going on. You know, I was going to say, is there a community that, that, I mean, does, because here's a very honest question. When yeah. you do take a stand, like, like you're telling me that you do with your children and you explain it, or you pull the person aside and say, uh-uh, you're not going to do this or whatever that looks mm -hmm. like, isn't there immediately this thought process of, gosh, she's a mean mom to her adopted kids, but yep. very different towards her biological children. <laughs> hey, I mean, do, well, do you come up against that at all? Um, we have come up against it sometimes. I think probably the person isn't always willing to verbalize that that's their feeling, but we have definitely heard that at times. Um, and the thing is, is we don't, we don't, treat a child with a cold the same way we treat a child with cancer. Oh, so yeah, if we are treating yeah. our biological child differently when they uh, respond differently to their environment, then we are treating our adopted child who has some severe special needs and requires some really specific responses to his behavior. That's because we're doing our job right. And a person on the outside who's just seeing, um, you know, a, just this postage stamp size of a picture with all their judgment and preconceived notions. But, oh, my gosh, I have an uh, my aunt's cousin's brother was adopted. I know all about this. I saw Oprah once. 
all about this. You know, I watched an episode of adoption. I know all about this. And they want to bring all their armchair quarterback expertise into the situation. That does not help anybody. Um, so as a church culture, we have got to bring humility to the table. We have got to bring teachability to the table. We've got to start listening to families who are on the front lines dealing with the orphan crisis. A lot of people call it an orphan crisis or um, who are really doing the work of orphan care and foster care and adoption. These are missions. We've got to start recognizing that adoptive families and foster families are missionaries in our own backyard and in our own neighborhood and stop treating them like they're just like everybody else. Because really, usually it's not just like everybody else. They are living an entirely different life and very few people understand that. Yeah, I love that. And you wouldn't send a missionary out onto the field without training, but yet adopted families all over the world take these children in and there aren't, there isn't any, well, I guess there is some training. I'm I, I, probably, I didn't training, have any, but there's not I didn't have any training when I adopted my three. <laughs> they yeah, just came with, okay. the, with the marriage. But um, right. so yeah, I guess there is training, but not for like these things that present after adoption. Right. Is that and what I'm hearing you training, say? Right. And even that training doesn't come anywhere near what you've actually experienced in your home. You know, I, I think in Upside Down, I talk about how it is like, um, it is like going through CPR training. And then later going through, like actually having to resuscitate someone who has no pulse. You know, those are two very different situations. CPR training does not prepare you for the trauma of dealing with a dead person and then trying to breathe life back into them. Exactly. This is very different from, you know, the training that we go through as adoptive or foster parents cannot even scratch the surface of what it's like to live with it in your home and give up all the different comforts in your home, all your comfort levels, all your, um, all your routines that you don't even recognize are there. Um, and then when all those change or they just are gone, nothing prepares you for that. And the church needs to recognize that this is a real deal. There's no furlough. There's, there's no, I mean, sometimes we get respite. Our family has never received respite. Our family has not done that, but some families do get respite, but we don't get furlough. We don't get sabbaticals. We do not get funding. <laughs> right. You know, um, we have a lot of extra costs and special needs and uh, financial costs and physical costs to our uh, physical well-being and our emotional well-being. Those things aren't funded. And, um, and it's tricky because they're also extremely private. You know, even like in our conversation that we're having right now, I'm like, oh, should I have said that about my son? Should I have said that about my daughter? And, you know, these are their stories. We want to protect them. But at the same time, if we're not willing to open up um, a little to let people see what's inside, that's what's causing a lot of these problems of ignorance and lack of support because people just do not know. And they've got to know because families need to be understood. And I have not really gone there with with what we've gone through either with our adopted kids you know my husband adopted my four and i adopted his three and mm-hmm. my my platform is more about luke's special needs but we we have some of these things present in in various children too but yeah there is like this i don't know shame attached almost um or i'm always extremely concerned about perception of other people 
what they're going to think if I were to say something about this or it's just a, it's a very hush hush topic. And I agree, we need to start talking about it more so we can get the resources that we need. And so that we don't have the stigma of shame attached to it because at the end of the day, you're doing the best job you can and I'm doing the best job I can. And I love all of my children fiercely and I wouldn't be bending over backwards to try to make it better if I didn't love them. Um, so I think as outsiders, just understanding that we really are doing the best we can and give us some grace too. Maybe we don't get it perfect every single time, but we're trying. Right. So anyway, <laughs> I'll climb down yeah. off my platform here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so switching gears a little bit as a caregiver, and I hear you talk about respite, and that's a huge area of concern for for myself and for our family too. We are desperate for a break, like weekly. Um, how do you indulge in self-care? I shouldn't even call it an indulgence. How do you right. <laughs> self-care into your life if you have an opportunity to? Right. Because it's like maintenance, you know. Exactly. It's not like it should be. Our car doesn't indulge in an oil change. That's just routine maintenance. <laughs> right. So we shouldn't have to indulge in it either. Right. I, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, I write. I mean, that's so part of that, of course, is that's my job. But also, I mean, it is good therapy for me. I mean, I know that your tagline is just keep living. My tagline could probably be writing is cheaper than bail. And they mean the same thing, right? I mean, yep, exactly. It's the same. So, <laughs> I mean, writing is such good therapy. Um, so I do that. And, um, and of course, I'm, I'm a prayer. So one thing that I have been learning, even just in this last season, this week, it's a really, really hard week for us. And um, I am learning that as I'm writing and praying, and often I'm doing the two at the same time, um, it is helpful to me to be able to get those feelings out. Because the thing about being overwhelmed for any of us, whether we're overwhelmed with a caregiving situation or we're overwhelmed with a hard uh, marriage or relationship situation or a financial or health situation, I mean, anything, whatever it is, whenever we are just like overwhelmed and uh, the floor has been yanked out from under us, that immediate feeling of grief or pain, you know, that we are dealing with, if we cannot articulate that, that's the scary thing. You know, it's, it's not being able to see what the situation really is. So for me, when I am able to pray and write something out, that's when I can actually see, oh, this is what I'm dealing with. I'm dealing with fear of failure right now, you know, or I'm dealing with feeling like I was betrayed right? or I'm dealing with feeling um, like someone disrespected me or like I'm dealing with anger because of the injustice of the situation, you know, and once we are able to verbalize and articulate that, um, and just kind of see what we're dealing with, then we have something concrete that we can do something about. But when it's just this immediate, uh, gut punch of overwhelming grief or fear or anything else, um, that's the scary thing for me. So, um, self-care I think is super important. And, um, and I mean, I'm biased as a writer, but I think everybody should journal and get this stuff out on paper and, and then burn it later if you don't ever want to read it again. But the act of writing and praying through it is 
super powerful and it will bring more healing into lives than a lot of really expensive therapy sometimes. Or maybe reading one of your books that you've written could be yeah. self-care for somebody that else. Could be, you know? That could be, right. <laughs> many, you're many you're so the- right. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> right. If so, buy my books. <laughs> buy my books also. Yeah. I mean, go buy a journal, but also buy my books. Right. Right. And I can be your self-care tool. Um, I know many things that you've written um, I have resonated with deeply, and I don't say this lightly. I don't resonate deeply with, um, I want to say this the right way, with, I guess, with newsletters that come into my inbox, they usually end up in my trash. And every single time one of your newsletters pops into my inbox, I immediately open it because I feel like God is sending me a direct message. So, and I've written you about a couple of them, but it is amazing how those have landed in my life at just the right time. So everybody go subscribe to her, her newsletter as well. Um, And so if people are aware that there's a family struggling with adoption, or they're even just aware that there's a family in their church or in their community who has adopted a child or two, how would you suggest that they could help that family move through that transition? Um, I would say buy my book. <laughs> okay. I would say read upside down. It's a short book. It's meant to be short and easy so that the person who needs the information yesterday can get it immediately. Um, aside from that, there's a, there's a free download of like the quick talking points. Also on my website, it's called the upside down cheat sheet on my upside down page there. Uh, Families need to understand that if a child in another family is um, a foster child or an adopted child, especially if it's a recently adopted child, they need to stay hands off and they need to follow the parent's lead in how they approach that child. They need to show all their love in in the beginning stages to the parents. And that is the best way they can love that child. That is the best way they can support and assist that child in healing um, by loving and supporting the parents. The parents are probably going to be overwhelmed. The parents are probably dealing with a lot of um, their own personal heart issues because so many things come up in our hearts that we could not have anticipated, even with all the hard questions that you have to answer in the foster and adoption process um, and interviews and all that, they don't even come close to what comes up in life. So um, they need prayer. They probably need some meals. Um, and you know they might not be able to attend all the normal things that they used to be able to attend. They might still want to be invited though. You know, I, mm-hmm. I know that for years we couldn't do anything <laughs> outside of our home and people stopped inviting us. And I would still see photos of a lot of people that I knew on Facebook doing hikes and, and events and things. And, and it just really, I mean, I couldn't have done them, but it would have been nice to have been invited mm-hmm. you know? to be seen, it would have been to not be just disregarded. Right. You know? So um, because not only did it feel like I was disregarded, but it also felt like um, nobody recognized what my family was going through and what my family was um, just really putting itself through for the kingdom's sake. Um, yeah, 
And that goes back to adoption and foster care are missions that our church that our churches need to recognize. That's great advice. It, do you notice a perception of well, you chose this, so buck up and deal with it at all, or is that is that not something that you've experienced? Um, I have heard other people say that they have experienced that directly. Uh, I have not heard anyone dare to say that to me. Um, although I wouldn't be surprised if they also think that. So, Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, and I know it's hard. I know it's hard for other people too. Um, I have felt often like our family was so weird because of a lot of different reasons that, I don't know. I wonder if are people intimidated? Are they even afraid to approach us sometimes? Um, and I just don't know. Yeah. I think families like ours are are just so overwhelming. People don't even know where to begin. <laughs> it's like, <Yeah. laughs> there's eight children and oh, I'm just not going to touch yeah. that because they don't even know right. food to bring the family. Like uh-huh. we've gotten that question. And it's so funny when Luke was in ICU, we got a couple of meals that were like monstrous and like fed our family for a week. And we were like, how much food do you think we eat? And they were, they'd mm-hmm. say, oh, well, you have, you know, five teenagers. But That's so true. I think there is this level where they just cannot even comprehend how much food do I need to bring you or what could I possibly do to make your life easier because right. your life seems so overwhelming anyway. Yeah. And it is. And yeah. And I know that I mean, for me, at least, I think that maybe it's also hard for people to approach you because maybe they feel like, um, maybe they feel like I'm condemning them for not being involved, you know, Mm. or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe they feel some of their own guilt or, you know, their own internal heart struggle, like, oh, well, I always sort of thought about adoption, but I could never do it myself. And, um, and so therefore I don't feel like I even want to peel that open here by getting, yeah. it, you know, so, and, and I can understand some of that, but we've still got to support these families. We are still all called to, um, to love the orphan. Mm-hmm. And that means a lot of different things. That doesn't mean the same thing for every person, but it means, um, you've got to address that issue in your own heart. So right. you can't just keep that in a box and shove it in the back of your closet and leave the adoptive family in your church to wither and die because you're afraid to touch them. Right. Because they will, if they don't have that supportive community come around them and help lift them up. Right. Very true. All right. Well, I have three takeaway questions. I just want you to tell me whatever is the first thing that enters your mind. The first Mm. one is how has being a caregiver changed you? Oh, it has broken me. I mean, I'm a totally different person than I was before we adopted. Um, Before we adopted, I was one of those people who just didn't know. And, um, and now I know, and it, you know, when you see stuff that you can't unsee, it changes you. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I hope that it has changed me in the best of ways, but I know that in other ways it has changed me into more, um, into not the best of ways. Am I more jaded than I was before? 
uh-huh. <laughs> you know, am, am I a little snarkier than I used to be? Yep. <laughs> Raising my am I, eye am I over not here. As nice? Yeah. I, I'm not as nice of a person anymore, probably. Right. And um, maybe that's good. You know, right. maybe I was too nice before. But probably, that's probably not true at all. I was probably never too nice before. But sure haven't gotten better at that. So, yeah, it has changed me. But at the same time, I feel like um, it has shown me more of the Lord's heart toward us than I could have ever imagined. You know, when we become parents, um, when we become biological parents, we're like, oh my gosh, now we see God's heart for us. Um, and that's true to an extent, but when you adopt or, uh, not necessarily even adopt, but when you choose to love someone when they don't love you back and when they do so many things to repel your love, that's what shows you the father's love for us. Exactly. He loved us. We were unlovable. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that will change you. Yes. I wrote a blog post along those exact same lines, um, called, are, are you my mother? And that is so true because the biological love is just instinctual, but the adoptive love is a choosing. I'm going to choose yeah. to love this person and yes, it's so representative of our father's love for us. It's amazing. Yeah. Um, second question. If you had one hour all to yourself, how would you spend it? Mm, I would either sleep or I would read. <laughs> I could read that. <laughs> if I could read in my sleep, that would really be perfect. But I've never been able to manage that. Or I would have thought writing. I thought maybe... Uh, I do that anyway. That's work right now. So yeah, no. <laughs> Sleep or read. That works. Sleep or read for sure. And last but not least, how many cups of coffee are you drinking these days? Um, well, usually only two, but they both have three shots of espresso. Ooh. But the second one is usually decaf. So yeah. So first coffee is three shots of espresso as a latte. And the second coffee is um, you know, like hobbits have second breakfast. Yes. We have second coffee. Okay. Second coffee. So and that one's usually decaf. But Placebo effect, right? You've got to be pretty revved up after that first cup. Well, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. In your 40s, nothing revs you up anymore. (laughs) I don't know. I'm I'm a nursing mama right now, so I'm not sure anything is revving right now. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, this has been fun. I'm glad that I finally got to talk to you in person. Well, not in person, but hear your real voice. And this has been great. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you, Jess. And where can people find you before we log off here? Okay. They can find me on my website, which is either shannongara.com or if you can't spell that, um, because sometimes I can't without the coffee either. That's okay. <laughs> um, copperlightwood.com will get you to the same place. And, um, or my books are also available on Amazon or any bookstore. And uh, I love Instagram right now. It's sort of a safe, happy place that's free of all. Well, I guess, honestly, right now it's not free of all the political turmoil that we're all going through, but it is a little bit um, diminished there. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, all those places. But find me at my website first and hit subscribe to that newsletter you mentioned. And I don't ever write anything just for the sake of writing it. I write 
usually two or three times a month, um, both on the website and in the newsletter. And it's never um, just for the sake of getting something out there. It is always only something that was worth my time that I feel like is going to be worth the time of the reader because I don't ever want to write something that's just uh, filling my calendar. Right. And her writing is pure poetry. It's beautiful. So yes, go ahead and subscribe to that newsletter. You won't regret it. All right. Well, thanks again. I appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jess. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening today. If you want to know more about The Lucas Project, find us at thelucasproject.org. If you want to know more about my story, head to JessPlusTheMess.com, and while there, subscribe to my monthly newsletter, or maybe check out my memoir, Sunlight Burning at Midnight. In the meantime, please hit subscribe and maybe leave a quick review. These are so important in the podcast world as they help us gain traction and recognition which translates into helping more caregivers. And until our next conversation, let's do what we do best. Just keep living. Thank you.